0: I think that both of us simultaneously cried out in mixed awe, wonder, terror, and disbelief in our own senses as we finally cleared the pass and saw what lay beyond. Of course, we must have had some natural theory in the back of our heads to steady our faculties for the moment. Probably we thought of such things as the grotesquely weathered stones of the Garden of the Gods in Colorado, or the fantastically symmetrical wind carved rocks of the Arizona desert. Perhaps we even half thought the sight a mirage like that we had seen the morning before on first approaching those mountains of madness. We must have had some such normal notions to fall back upon as our eyes swept that limitless, tempest-scarred plateau and grasped the almost endless labyrinth of colossal, regular, and geometrically eurythmic stone masses which reared their crumbled and pitted crests above a glacial sheet no more than forty or fifty feet deep at its thickest, and in places obviously thinner. The effect of the monstrous sight was indescribable, for some fiendish violation of no natural law seemed certain at the outset. Here, on a hellishly ancient tableland fully 20,000 feet high, and in a climate deadly to habitation since a pre-human age not less than 500,000 years ago, there stretched nearly to the vision's limit a tangle of orderly stone, which only the desperation of mental self-defense could possibly attribute to any but a conscious and artificial cause. We had previously dismissed, so far as serious thought was concerned, any theory that the cubes and ramparts of the mountainsides were other than natural in origin. How could they be otherwise, when man himself could scarcely have been differentiated from the great apes at the time when this region succumbed to the present unbroken reign of glacial death? Yet now the sway of reason seemed irrefutably shaken, for the cyclopean maze of squared, curved, and angled blocks had features which cut off all comfortable refuge. It was, very clearly, the blasphemous city of the mirage in stark, objective, and ineluctable reality. That damnable portent had had a material basis after all. There had been some horizontal stratum of ice dust in the upper air, and this shocking stone survival had projected its image across the mountains according to the simple laws of reflection. Of course, the phantom had been twisted and exaggerated, and had contained things which the real source did not contain. Yet now, as we saw that real source, we thought it even more hideous and menacing than its distant image. Only the incredible, unhuman massiveness of these vast stone towers and ramparts had saved the frightful thing from utter annihilation in the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, of years it had brooded there amidst the blasts of a bleak upland. Corona Mundi, Roof of the World. All sorts of fantastic phrases sprang to our lips as we looked dizzily down at the unbelievable spectacle. I thought again of the eldritch primal myths which had so persistently haunted me since my first sight of this dead Antarctic world. Of the demoniac plateau of Ling. Of the Migo or Abominable Snowman, of the Himalayas. Of the narcotic manuscripts with their pre-human implications of the Cthulhu cult, of the Necronomicon, and of the Hyperborean legends of Formis Sothogawa and the worse-than-formless star spawn associated with that semi-entity. For boundless miles in every direction the thing stretched off with very little thinning. Indeed, as our eyes followed it to the right and left along the base of the low, gradual foothills which separated it from the actual mountain rim, we decided that we could see no thinning at all, except for an interruption at the left of the pass through which we had come. We had merely struck, at random, a limited part of something of incalculable extent. The foothills were more sparsely sprinkled with grotesque stone structures, linking the terrible city to the already familiar cubes and ramparts which evidently formed its mountain outposts. These latter, as well as the queer cave-mouths, were as thick on the inner as on the outer sides of the mountains. The nameless stone labyrinth consisted for the most part of walls from 10 to 150 feet in ice-clear height and of a thickness varying from 5 to 10 feet. It was composed mostly of prodigious blocks of dark primordial slate, schist, and sandstone, blocks in many cases as large as 4 by 6 by 8 feet, though in several places it seemed to be carved out of a solid uneven bedrock of Precambrian slate. The buildings were far from equal in size, there being innumerable honeycomb arrangements of enormous extent, as well as smaller separate structures. The general shape of these sayings was tended to be conical, pyramidal, or terraced, though there were many perfect cylinders, perfect cubes, clusters of cubes, and other rectangular forms, and a peculiar sprinkling of angled edifices whose five-pointed ground plan roughly suggested modern fortifications. The builders had made constant and expert use of the principle of the arch, and domes had probably existed in the city's heyday. The whole tangle was monstrously weathered, and the glacial surface from which the towers projected was strewn with fallen blocks and immemorial debris. Where the glaciation was transparent, we could see the lower parts of the gigantic piles, and notice the ice-preserved stone bridges which connected the different towers at varying distances above the ground. On the exposed walls we could detect the scarred places where other and higher bridges of the same sort had existed. Closer inspection revealed countless, largish windows, some of which were closed with shutters of a petrified material originally wood, though most gaped open in a sinister and menacing fashion. Many of the ruins, of course, were roofless, and with uneven, though wind-rounded, upper edges whilst others, of a more sharply conical or pyramidal model, or else protected by higher surrounding structures, preserved intact outlines despite the omnipresent crumbling and pitting. With the field glass, we could barely make out what seemed to be sculptural decorations in horizontal bands, decorations including those curious groups of dots, whose presence on the ancient soapstones now assumed a vastly larger significance. In many places, the buildings were totally ruined, and the ice sheet deeply riven from various geologic causes. In other places the stonework was worn down to the very level of the glaciation. One broad swath, extending from the plateau's interior to a cleft in the foothills about a mile to the left of the pass we had traversed, was wholly free from buildings, and probably represented, we concluded, the course of some great river which, in tertiary times, millions of years ago, had poured through the city and into some prodigious subterranean abyss of the Great Barrier Range. Certainly, this was above all a region of caves, gulfs, and underground secrets beyond human penetration. Looking back to our sensations, and recalling our dazedness at viewing this monstrous survival from eons we had thought pre-human, I can only wonder that we preserved the semblance of equilibrium which we did. Of course we knew that something chronology, scientific theory, or our own consciousness, was woefully awry. Yet we kept enough poise to guide the plane, observe many things quite minutely, and take a careful series of photographs which may yet serve both us and the world in good stead. In my case, ingrained scientific habit may have helped, for above all my bewilderment and sense of menace there burned a dominant curiosity to fathom more of this age-old secret to know what sort of beings had built and lived in this incalculably gigantic place, and what relation to the general world of its time, or of other times, so unique a concentration of life could have had. For this place could be no ordinary city. It must have formed the primary nucleus and center of some archaic and unbelievable chapter of Earth's history whose outward ramifications, recalled only dimly in the most obscure and distorted myths, had vanished utterly amidst the chaos of terrene convulsions long before any human race we know had shambled out of apedom. Here sprawled a paleogan megalopolis, compared with which the fabled Atlantis and Lemuria, Camorium and Uzeldarum, and Olotho and the land of Lamar are recent things of today, not even of yesterday. A megalopolis ranking with such whispered pre-human blasphemies as Velusia, Rolye, Ib and the land of Nar and the nameless city of Arabia Deserta. As we flew above that tangle of stark titan towers, my imagination sometimes escaped all bounds and roped aimlessly in the realms of fantastic associations, even weaving links betwixt this lost world and some of my own wildest dreams concerning the mad horror at the camp. The plane's fuel tank, in the interest of greater lightness, had only been partly filled, Hence, we now had to exert caution in our explorations. Even so, however, we covered an enormous extent of ground, or rather, air, after swooping down to a level where the wind became virtually negligible. There seemed to be no limit to the mountain range, or to the length of the frightful stone city which bordered its inner foothills. Fifty miles of flight in each direction showed no major change in the labyrinth of rock and masonry that clawed up corpse like through the eternal ice. There were, though, some highly absorbing diversifications, such as the carvings on the canyon where that broad river had once pierced the foothills and approached its sinking place in the Great Range. The headlands at the stream's entrance had been boldly carved into cyclopean pylons, and something about the ridgy, Barrel shaped design stirred up an oddly vague, hateful, and confusing semi remembrances in both Danforth and me. We also came upon several star shaped open spaces, evidently public squares, and noted various undulations in the terrain. Where a sharp hill rose, it was generally hollowed out into some sort of rambling stone edifice, but there were at least two exceptions. Of these latter, One was too badly weathered to disclose what had been on the jutting eminence, while the other still bore a fantastic conical monument, carved out of the solid rock and roughly resembling such things as a well-known snake tomb in the ancient valley of Petra. Flying inland from the mountains, we discovered that the city was not of infinite width, even though its link along the foothills seemed endless. After about thirty miles, the grotesque stone buildings began to thin out, and in ten more miles we came to an unbroken waste virtually without signs of sentient artifice. The course of the river beyond the city seemed marked by a broad, depressed line, while the land assumed a somewhat greater ruggedness, seeming to slope slightly upward as it receded in the mist-hazed west. So far we had made no landing, yet to leave the plateau without an attempt at entering some of the monstrous structures would have been inconceivable. Accordingly, we decided to find a smooth place on the foothills, near our navigable pass, there grounding the plane and preparing to do some exploration on foot. Though these gradual slopes were partly covered with a scattering of ruins, low flying soon disclosed an ample number of possible landing places. Selecting that nearest to the pass, since our next flight would be across the Great Range and back to camp, we succeeded about 12.30pm in coming down on a smooth, hard snowfield wholly devoid of obstacles and well adapted to a swift and favorable takeoff later on. It did not seem necessary to protect the plane with the snow banking for so brief a time and in so comfortable an absence of high winds at this level. Hence we merely saw that the landing skis were safely lodged and that the vital parts of the mechanism were guarded against the cold. For our foot journey, we discarded the heaviest of our flying furs and took with us a small outfit consisting of pocket compass, hand camera, light provisions, voluminous notebooks and paper, geologist's hammer and chisel, specimen bags, coil of climbing rope, and powerful electric torches with extra batteries. This equipment having been carried in the plane on the chance we might be able to effect a landing, take ground pictures, make drawings and topographical sketches, and obtain rock specimens from some bare slope, outcropping, or mountain cave. Fortunately, we had a supply of extra paper to tear up, place in a spare specimen bag, and use on the ancient principle of hare and hounds for marking our course in any interior mazes we might be able to penetrate. This had been brought in case we found some cave system with air quiet enough to allow such a rapid and easy method, in place of the usual rock-chipping method of trailblazing. Walking cautiously downhill over the crusted snow toward the stupendous stone labyrinth that loomed against the opalescent west, we felt almost as keen a sense of imminent marvels as we had felt on approaching the unfathomed mountain pass four hours previously. True, we had become visually familiar with the incredible secret concealed by the barrier peaks, yet the prospect of actually entering primordial walls reared by conscious beings perhaps millions of years ago, before any known race of man could have existed, was nonetheless awesome and potentially terrible in its implications of cosmic abnormality. Though the thinness of the air at this prodigious altitude made exertions somewhat more difficult than usual, both Danforth and I found ourselves bearing up very well and felt equal to almost any task which might fall to our lot. It took only a few steps to bring us to a shapeless ruin, worn level with the snow. While ten or fifteen rods further on, there was a huge roofless rampart still complete in its gigantic five-pointed outline and rising to an irregular height of ten or eleven feet. For this ladder we headed, and when at last we were able actually to touch its weather cyclopean blocks, we felt that we had established an unprecedented and almost blasphemous link with forgotten eons normally closed to our species. This rampart, shaped like a star and perhaps 300 feet from point to point, was built of Jurassic sandstone blocks of irregular size, averaging 6 by 8 feet in surface. There was a row of arched loopholes, or windows, about 4 feet wide and 5 feet high, spaced quite symmetrically along the points of the star and at its inner angles, and with bottoms about 4 feet from the glaciated surface. Looking through these, we could see that the masonry was fully 5 feet thick, and there were no partitions remaining within, and that there were traces of banded carvings or bas reliefs on the interior walls, facts we had indeed guessed before when flying over this low rampart and others like it. Though lower parts must have originally existed, all traces of such things were now wholly obscured by the deep layer of ice and snow at this point. We crawled through one of the windows and vainly tried to decipher the nearly effaced mural designs, but did not attempt to disturb the glaciated floor. Our orientation flights had indicated that many buildings in the city proper were less ice-choked and that we might perhaps find wholly clear interiors leading down to the true ground level if we entered those structures still roofed at the top. Before we left the rampart, we photographed it carefully and studied its mortarless cyclopean masonry with complete bewilderment. We wished that Pobody were present, for his engineering knowledge might have helped us guess how such titanic blocks could have been handled in that unbelievably remote age when the city and its outskirts were built up. The half-mile walk downhill to the actual city, with the upper wind shrieking vainly and savagely through the skyward peaks in the background, was something whose smallest details will always remain engraved on my mind. Only in fantastic nightmares could any human beings but Danforth and me conceive such optical effects. Between us and the churning vapors of the west lay that monstrous tangle of dark stone towers its outre and incredible forms impressing us afresh at every new angle of vision. It was a mirage in solid stone, and were it not for the photographs, I would still doubt that such a thing could be. The general type of masonry was identical with that of the rampart we had examined, but the extravagant shapes which this masonry took and its urban manifestations were past all description. Even the pictures illustrate only one or two phases of its infinite bizarre. Endless variety, preternatural massiveness, and utterly alien exoticism. There were geometrical forms for which an Euclid could scarcely find a name, cones of all degrees of irregularity and truncation, terraces of every sort of provocative disproportion, shafts with odd, bulbous enlargements, broken columns in curious groups, and five-pointed or five-ridged arrangements of mad grotesqueness. As we drew nearer, we could see beneath certain transparent parts of the ice sheet, and detect some of the tubular stone bridges that connected the crazily sprinkled structures of various heights. Of orderly streets, there seemed to be none, the only broad open swath being a mile to the left, where the ancient river had doubtless flowed through the town into the mountains. Our field glasses shewed the external horizontal bands of nearly effaced sculptures and dot groups to be very prevalent and we could half imagine what the city must once have looked like, even though most of the roofs and tower tops had necessarily perished. As a whole, it had been a complex tangle of twisted lanes and alleys, all of them deep canyons, and some little better than tunnels because of the overhanging masonry or overarching bridges. Now, outspread below us, it loomed like a dream fantasy against a westward mist, through whose northern end the low reddish Antarctic sun of early afternoon was struggling to shine. And when for a moment the sun encountered a denser obstruction and plunged the scene into temporary shadow, the effect was subtly menacing in a way I can never hope to depict. Even the faint howling and piping of the unfelt wind in the great mountain passes behind us took on a wilder note of purposeful malignity. The last stage of our descent to the town was unusually steep and abrupt and a rock outcropping at the edge where the grade changed led us to think that an artificial terrace had once existed there. Under the glaciation, we believed, there must be a flight of steps, or its equivalent. When at last we plunged into the labyrinthine town itself, clambering over fallen masonry and shrinking from the oppressive nearness and dwarfing height of omnipresent crumbling and pitted walls our sensations again became such that I marvel at the amount of self-control we retained. Danforth was frankly jumpy and began making some offensively irrelevant speculations about the horror at the camp, which I resented all the more because I could not help sharing certain conclusions forced upon us by many features of this morbid survival from nightmare antiquity. The speculations worked on his imagination too, for in one place, where a debris-littered alley turned a sharp corner. He insisted that he saw faint traces of ground markings which he did not like, whilst elsewhere he stopped to listen to a subtle, imaginary sound from some undefined point. A muffled musical piping, he said, not unlike that of the wind in the mountain caves yet somehow disturbingly different. The ceaseless five-pointedness of the surrounding architecture and of the few distinguishable mural arabesques had a dimly sinister suggestiveness we could not escape, and gave us a touch of terrible subconscious certainty concerning the primal entities which had reared and dwelt in this unhallowed place. Nevertheless, our scientific and adventurous souls were not wholly dead, and we mechanically carried out our program of chipping specimens from all the different rock types represented in the masonry. We wished a rather full set in order to draw better conclusions regarding the age of the place. Nothing in the Great Outer Wall seemed to date from later than the Jurassic and Comanchean periods, nor was any piece of stone in the entire place of a greater recency than the Pliocene Age. In stark certainty, we were wandering amidst a death which had reigned at least 500,000 years, and in all probability, even longer. As we proceeded through this maze of stone-shadowed twilight, we stopped at all the available apertures to study interiors and investigate entrance possibilities. Some were above our reach, whilst others led only into ice-choked ruins as unroofed and barren as the rampart on the hill. One, though spacious and inviting, opened on a seemingly bottomless abyss without visible means of descent. Now and then we had a chance to study the petrified wood of a surviving shutter, and were impressed by the fabulous antiquity implied in the still discernible grain. These things had come from Mesozoic gymnosperms and conifers, especially Cretaceous cycads, and from fan palms and early angiosperms of plainly tertiary date. Nothing definitely later than the Pliocene could be discovered. In the placing of these shutters, whose edges shewed the former presence of queer and long-vanished hinges, usage seemed to be varied, some being on the outer and some on the inner side of the deep embrasures. They seemed to have become wedged in place, thus surviving the rusting of their former and probably metallic fixtures and fastenings. After a time, we came across a row of windows and the bulges of a colossal five-ridged cone of undamaged apex, which led into a vast, well-preserved room with stone flooring. But these were too high in the room to permit of descent without a rope. We had a rope with us, but did not wish to bother with this 20-foot drop unless obliged to especially in this thin plateau air where great demands were made upon the hard action. This enormous room was probably a hall or concourse of some sort, and our electric torches shoot bold, distinct, and potentially startling sculptures arranged around the walls in broad, horizontal bands, separated by equally broad strips of conventional arabesques. We took careful note of this spot planning to enter here unless a more easily gained interior were encountered. Finally, though, we did encounter exactly the opening we wished, an archway about 6 feet wide and 10 feet high, marking the formal end of an aerial bridge which had spanned an alley about 5 feet above the present level of glaciation. These archways, of course, were flush with the upper story floors, and in this case one of the floors still existed. The building thus accessible was a series of rectangular terraces on our left, facing westward. That across the valley, where the other archway yawned, was a decrepit cylinder with no windows and with a curious bulge about ten feet above the aperture. It was totally dark inside, and the archway seemed to open on a well of illimitable emptiness. Heaped debris made the entrance to the vast left-hand building doubly easy yet for a moment we hesitated before taking advantage of the long-wished chance. For though we had penetrated into this tangle of archaic mystery, it required fresh resolution to carry us actually inside a complete and surviving building of a fabulous elder world whose nature was becoming more and more hideously plain to us. In the end, however, we made the plunge, and scrambled up over the rubble into the gaping embrasure. The floor beyond was of great slate slabs and seemed to form the outlet of a long, high corridor with sculptured walls. Observing the many inner archways which led off from it and realizing the probable complexity of the nest of apartments within, we decided that we must begin our system of hare and hound trailblazing. Hitherto our compasses, together with frequent glimpses of the vast mountain range between the towers in our rear, had been enough to prevent our losing our way but from now on, the artificial substitute would be necessary. Accordingly, we reduced our extra paper to shreds of suitable size, placed these in a bag to be carried by Danforth, and prepared to use them as economically as safety would allow. This method would probably gain us immunity from straying, since there did not appear to be any strong air currents inside the primordial masonry. If such should develop, or if our paper supply should give out, We could, of course, fall back on the more secure, though more tedious and retarding method of rock chipping. Just how extensive a territory we had opened up, it was impossible to guess without a trial. The close and frequent connection of the different buildings made it likely that we might cross from one to another on bridges underneath the ice, except where impeded by local collapses and geological rifts, for very little glaciation seemed to have entered the massive constructions. Almost all the areas of transparent ice had revealed the submerged windows as tightly shuttered, as if the town had been left in that uniform state, until the glacial sheet came to crystallize the lower part for all succeeding time. Indeed, one gained a curious impression that this place had been deliberately closed and deserted in some dim, bygone eon, rather than overwhelmed by any sudden calamity or even gradual decay. Had the coming of the ice been foreseen and had a nameless population left en masse to seek a less doomed abode? The precise physiographic conditions attending the formation of the ice sheet at this point would have to wait for later solution. It had not, very plainly, been a grinding drive. Perhaps the pressure of accumulated snows had been responsible, and perhaps some flood from the river, or from the bursting of some ancient glacial dam in the Great Range, had helped to create the special state now observable. Imagination could conceive almost anything in connection with this place.